So I want to get right into the word today. Uh, as the, all the home folks here know, we just finished a seven-week series in the book of First Thessalonians, and we've already been previewing the series that kicks off next week. And so today is kind of a standalone uh, gap week, and, and I want to share a word with you today. I'm going to give you my title up front, but you're not going to know what in the world it means until the very end of the message. So if you're a note taker, just by faith, you can write down my title, and the title for the sermon today is The Family of the Unsandaled. I'm going to say that again because some of you didn't even know that was a word. The Family of the Unsandaled. I want to share a word with you today out of an Old Testament law. Now, if you're one of those people that have tried to read through the Bible in a year, and I encourage you to do that, and many of us are, uh, you come to some of these Old Testament laws, and, and some of them are kind of weird. Uh, they don't make a lot of sense. And the tendency is for us to read the law, and it doesn't make sense, and instead of giving it much thought, we go, well, that's Old Covenant. We don't live under the law anymore, so that doesn't apply to me. And then we move on. I will say, thanks be to God, we don't live under the Old Covenant. Uh, we can just lift our hands and worship and celebrate communion today. Nobody had to drag a bull or a ram in here this morning. No sacrifices, no blood sprinkled on this altar. I thank God we're in the New Covenant. But that doesn't mean that the, the words that God spoke in the Old Testament to His people don't have application in our lives. Jesus uh, talked about that. When he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the word of God, though we don't live by uh, laws that are carved and etched into stone tablets, the Bible says in, in Jeremiah that the word of God would be written on the hearts of his people. And there is the spirit of the law that still applies to our lives. And so, that being said, I want to speak to you today about an obscure law in the Old Testament in a message I'm calling the family of the unsandaled. Go with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 25. It's one of the first five books of the Old Testament. It's in the Pentateuch. So you start at the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And I want to begin reading in verse 5 and 6. And it says this, Old Testament law. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to her. Some of you that have brother-in-laws, aren't you glad we're in the new covenant? Make you want to take communion again right there. So what was the duty of the brother-in-law? Verse 6, the first son that she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This law is called the Leveret Marriage Law. The Leveret Marriage Law. And let me tell you what the significance of this law was to them. In this culture, a family's name was passed on through the father. For example, you go to Matthew 1 and read the genealogy of Jesus. 
that starts with Abraham, begat Isaac, and Isaac's son, you know, and on and on and on. It just goes, and you read that long list, and you're going, where is the Christmas story? All these names, this doesn't make sense. But the, the line of the family goes through the father's name. So if a man dies and he has no children, that means his family line ends right there. Verse 6 said he would be blotted out from Israel's history. There's another reason that, that this Leverett marriage law was put into place. Because also any land that he possessed was passed down through the father's name. So when they gave out land to the tribes of Israel, they called each tribe by the name of the father and they gave them an allotted land. And when that man died, the land went to his, his sons and his daughters and then so forth and so on. So if a woman who is uh, widowed, doesn't have children, when she dies, the name dies, she's blotted out from Israel's history, she loses her land, she loses her security, and so you can see that this all of a sudden becomes a, a disastrous situation for a woman who is widowed and childless. Now this practice of the leveret marriage, uh, it was in practice even before the law came. You can go back to Genesis 38 and read the story of Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. And man, now that's a crazy chapter. I'll not even go in there today. But, but it's that same leveret marriage situation going on. But when we get under the Mosaic law, after Moses goes and gets the commandments and establishes rule and order for the people of God, this isn't just something that they did within the culture. This became an obligation. This was something that you have to, you have to do this. It's expected of you, and, and we see that in the New Testament, and for time's sake, we won't turn there, but in Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees came to Jesus. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they were trying to trump Jesus on his theology. And so they came to Jesus, and they gave him a hypothetical situation. They said there was a man uh, who married a woman, and, and he died before they had children. And so his brother took her as his wife. But then he died before they had children. And so his younger brother took her as his wife. But then he died. And it happened seven times. And the question they asked Jesus was, so when they get to heaven, because you believe in a resurrection, when they get to heaven, which one is going to be married to her? I don't have time to explain how off their theology was. Jesus just said, you don't understand the word of God. But what I want to point out in that is that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But they had no problem believing in the leveret marriage law. It was just a part of the culture. That's the law. Let's go to the spirit of the law. I want to talk about the heart behind it. Why, why is this in there and why is it worth reading in 2017 in the new covenant? I want to tell you this morning that the heart of this law... The heart of this law says that when everything in your life falls apart, when nothing looks like it's going to move forward, when you don't have a future, when you don't have a, a process in place, God has created a system of restoration. What this law tells us is that when it looks like your future is bleak and there's no hope, God has a system in place that you can recover, that you can, you can live again, you can thrive again. This will not be uh, your final destination. This is not the end of your line. Your life is not going to be blotted out. There is hope. This little obscure text tells us that we serve a God 
of second chances. It tells us, and it told his people what Psalm 34, 18 so eloquently tells us about God. That he is close to the brokenhearted. And that he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Leveret Law tells us what Psalm 68, 5 says. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. This little law communicates to us what Psalm 146, 9 tells us when it says, The Lord watches over the foreigner and he sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Just as God called Nehemiah to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, just as he called Haggai and Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, he calls the brother-in-law to rebuild the broken life of his sister-in-law. Why? Because God is communicating his heart that, that people can be restored, that God is a God of second chances. And there's nowhere in the Bible that tells this story based on this law better than the book of Ruth. So really quickly, I just want to show you just a, a snapshot of the book of Ruth. If you've never read the book of Ruth, you ought to read it this afternoon. It's only four chapters long. It's a powerful love story. And I want to take you there for just a moment. The story begins in Naomi and her husband and her two sons are experiencing a famine in Bethlehem. And so they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab to survive the famine. But while they're there, Naomi's husband dies. Now that could potentially be the end of her story except for the fact that she has two sons. And so she tells her sons to go and find some, some wives. They're living in Moab, so they find two Moabite women to marry them. But then bad turns to worse because her two sons die. So now here's Naomi. She's living in a foreign land with her two daughter-in-laws. She has no future. She has no hope. And so in Ruth chapter 1, verse 12 she encourages her daughter-in-laws to move on without her. Here's what she says in verse 12. She says, return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and then gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? What's she talking about? She's talking about the Leverite law of marriage. She's saying, would you stick around for another 18 years? Till I had two more sons, till they grew up, so that they could carry on your deceased husband's name? She says, would you remain unmarried until then? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than it is for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Well, that's all that one of the daughters needed to hear. She said, okay, I, I get it. She left. Orpah left, and she went and found her another man. But the other stepdaughter, the other daughter-in-law is Ruth. And Ruth, the Bible says, clung to Naomi. She said, where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'm going to live. Your people are going to be my people, and your God are going to be my God. And so the Bible says the two of them went back to Bethlehem after being gone for so long. They come back to Bethlehem, and all the women in the town are saying, could that be Naomi? Wow, Naomi's back. Look, everybody, it's Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. 
And when she heard people calling her pleasant, look at what she said in verse 20 of chapter 1. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because Mara means bitter. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Can I just stop and say that there's a lot of Christians that are living in the tension of verse 21. There's a lot of Christians that are living right there of saying the Lord has brought me back empty. See, it's bad enough to be in a place where you feel like God's against you. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But I would dare say that this is even worse. Naomi doesn't feel like God's forgotten her. She feels like God knows exactly where she is. He just doesn't care. She says, the Lord brought me back empty. So she's living in a place where she says, my theology says God is in control. My experience says that God doesn't care about what I'm dealing with. So, so my vantage point is this. I'll never be pleasant again. Change my name. I'll never be pleasant again. Because though I understand that God is sovereign and God is in control, He obviously doesn't care about the circumstances that I'm facing today. And if that's you today, I want to just declare to you in this moment the Good Shepherd of Psalm 23. Many of you could quote it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. But listen to verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. That's what God wants to do. He's a restoring God. Even if you feel like, you know, I know God's in control, but, but he's written me off. If you know the rest of the story of Ruth, then you know what happens. But as you get through the four chapters of this story, you, you learn that this young girl, Ruth, now living in Bethlehem, goes out into the fields to try and glean some of the leftover harvest so that her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, will have something to eat. And while she's out there, she just happens to be gleaning in the fields of a man named Boaz. And Boaz just happens to take an interest in this new girl in town. And Boaz just happens to be a close relative of Naomi. And all of a sudden, Naomi realizes, hold up, wait a minute. This guy who's showing you attention, this guy who's treating you favorably, this guy who's filling your bag full of grain every day, he's a kinsman redeemer. In other words, what she was saying is, look, the Leverite marriage law says that I don't have any younger sons to give you. But if I don't have any younger sons, then the law says we go to the next person in line. And we just happen to know that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Spoiler alert. Boaz marries Ruth. They have a baby. The baby who's born, according to the Leverite marriage, the first child, doesn't take his name. He falls in the line of the deceased husband of Ruth, which means Naomi, who had no hope, 
who said, call me bitter, all of a sudden, she has a child. And at the end of Ruth, it doesn't say, and Ruth had a baby. It says, Naomi had a child. Because all of a sudden, the promise was there for her. And the Bible says that in that moment, they, they took the child into her arms. See, this is an incredible love story about Ruth and Boaz. But the bigger love story is between Naomi and God. It's a love story that God says, I didn't forget you. I didn't forget you when you left and you went down to Moab. I didn't forget you when your husband died. I didn't forget you when your kids died. I didn't forget you when you came back and you had nothing. I never forgot you. The Bible says that little boy, they named Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of David who became the king of Israel. And 28 generations in that family line that otherwise would have been blotted out in Israel's history. 28 generations later, Jesus, the Messiah, is born to the line of Naomi. It's God saying, I am in the restoration business. When you thought it was over, when you said, change my name, there's no hope for me. God is a God who restores. Now what we've read so far in Deuteronomy 25, out of this law, communicates what God's heart is for his people. But I want to read a little bit farther in Deuteronomy 25 because I want to get down to the matter of what is in our hearts today. So look at it with me again. I know you enjoyed this strange verse so much the first time. Let's read it twice. Verse 5, if brothers are living together and one of them dies with a son, without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Verse 7, reading on. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. And if he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders. She will take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. This man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now, if you thought the law was strange, what happens to the man that doesn't keep the law is really strange. The fact that these consequences are even in there communicates something to us. They communicate that people didn't obey this law out of comfort. People didn't obey this law out of convenience. It wasn't a law that they obeyed by choice or by chance. Apparently, some of the men did not want to take their sister-in-law and marry her. Apparently, there were men that said, I don't want to fulfill this duty. This law is a burden 
on God's people. But can I just say today, though, thank God we don't live under the Old Testament law. God still calls the church to carry other people's burdens. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says it like this. Carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I know you're not saying amen because you're thinking. But this duty and this responsibility to restore the broken set Israel apart from every other nation. In any other nation around there, if a woman is childless and her husband died, she has no hope. But Israel was the envy of other nations because God had put within the DNA of his people that he's a God that restores, that he's a God that brings back from the edge of despair. There were serious consequences for somebody that disobeyed this law. If a man chose not to restore what was lost and it was within his power to do so, Something was going to happen. The Bible says in verse 8, the first thing that would happen is the elders of the church would bring him to the gate and they would talk to him. And I just want to come to you as an elder in the gate today. They try to talk reason to him and say, look, you have a responsibility to restore what was lost. You have a responsibility to help your family. But if that didn't work, the widow would take his shoe, spit in his face, and shame him. And it wasn't just the embarrassment of the moment. It wasn't really even about him and it wasn't about her. His unwillingness to restore her was about the generations of children that would never be because of his selfishness. And, and the reproach that would come on him if he didn't do it was not about him wiping spit off his face or trying to find another shoe. The reproach was his family line from then forward would be called the family of the unsandaled. I've often said to this church that, that God wants to give you a dream that's bigger than your lifetime. God wants to give you a vision that is multi-generational. There's things that God wants to do in and through our lives that really we will never reap the dividends from. It's something that God is using in and through us for generations to come. That's what God was looking for in the brother-in-law. He had the opportunity to make a difference for generations. He had the opportunity to, to change the trajectory of his family line. He wasn't just sinning against the widow. He was sinning against her unborn sons and against his dead brother because he turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to her need. His whole family is going to carry the shame of being the family of the unsandaled. So the question is, who are the unsandaled today? Who's missing a shoe in the house of God this morning? I'm going to tell you who it is. It's those who refuse to understand the heart of God. It's those who have no idea what it means to be a part of the family of God. When you see people in need, that need restored, that need a second chance, that need to recover what they've lost, and you choose to do nothing about it, you're unsandaled. When you just ignore 
the despair of people around you. Now look, you may never be a widow or a widower, but you may at some point in your life come to the place of hopelessness. You may at some point in your life come to the place where you feel like nothing is going to work out. This is the, the end of the road. I can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And you find yourself in that place of need, needing recovery and restoration and needing somebody to carry your burden for you. I want to declare something prophetically this morning. This is not the church of the unsandal. If you find yourself in a place of need, if you're broken, if you're hurting, if you don't know if you can get back up again, I want to tell you, you are in a church that believes in a God of restoration. You're in a church that believes this is not the church of the unsandaled. We're not going to say, well, bless your heart. You know what bless your heart means, though. It doesn't mean what it sounds like. Well, bless your heart. No. You're amongst the people that understand the responsibility that is ours. That God is a God of restoration and that God wants to restore his people by his people. God wants to use me and he wants to use you to come along somebody that's fallen. To be like the Samaritan who just could not step over the lame man in the street. But had to stop and pick him up put him on his own donkey and take him to a hotel and pay his rate so that he could be healed and restored. That's who God is calling us to be, not the family of the unsandaled. You know, this week, we've probably all been watching the news and we've seen how, because of the floods in Texas, people have rallied. And isn't that been encouraging to see? I mean, we live in such a self-centered world. Not that we would wish disaster on anyone, but if there is a silver lining, it's beautiful to see that in times of, of tragic circumstance, people show their better side. I've got friends that loaded up vans and drove down to South Texas to help with the, the rescue and relief efforts. People from all over are making donations and making contributions. Why? Because they're trying to help those that are in need. It's a reflection of the heart of God. But last week, one of the big stories in the news was all of the negative publicity and press for Pastor Joel Osteen and Lakewood Church because it went out on, on Twitter that somebody had basically said to the effect, how can you have an 18,000 seat church in Houston and not open the doors and let people come in? Now, now, let me say this. I don't trust the media, and we don't know all the details, so I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to defend that church, but I'm definitely not trying to condemn them. I will say that. That's not my point. My point in saying it is to make an observation about our lives, and the observation is this, that if we come in every weekend, and we worship God, and we enjoy our singing, and we break bread, and we have fellowship, and we do life groups, and we enjoy life together, but we turn a blind eye to the brokenness, and the hurting, and the desperation that's all around us, I want to tell you something, this community has a right to steal our shoes, spit in our face, and call us the family of the unsandal. Because God is a God of restoration. And he wants to do it through you. And he wants to do it through me. He wants to use us to pick up the broken and the hurting and the abandoned. 
And just like those elders at the gate, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to talk some sense into us, to encourage us towards compassion again. The Holy Spirit's reminding us today, church, that we have an obligation to the family of God. We have an obligation to those who don't have a faith line in their family. There are many people who will never be born again if we don't insert ourselves into the family line with faith. They'll never come to salvation. They'll never be born again. They'll never know redemption. They won't recover. They won't be restored unless the church refuses to be the family of the unsandwiched. I want to pray for you today. I want to ask you to bow your head with me all over this room. Maybe you're hearing this message today. And as odd and as obscure as this text has been, you have heard the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through it. And He's dealing with your heart. My prayer this week for you and for me has been, God, break our heart for what breaks yours. Break our heart for what breaks yours. Bring us to the place where we refuse to sit idly by in our complacency. Counting our many blessings, turning a deaf ear and a blind eye and a cold shoulder to those in need. God, help us today to see that when we carry one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. Not an Old Testament law, the command of our risen Savior. God, prick our hearts today and our consciences to see needs around us like never before. Give us a spirit of humility today to be encouragers of others. Right now with our our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to pray over you a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed over the church in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Here's the prayer. Finally, brothers and sisters, Rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. And live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Father, help us to live and strive for full restoration. May we never see a brother or sister who's fallen and count them out again. May we never see someone who's hurting, who's who's broken, and someone whose life is in shambles and think that you can't rebuild them. Make them new. Set them free. Use them for your glory. God, we refuse to allow this church to be unsandaled in this community. We will love them with your love. We will serve them with your compassion. And we will extend to them the grace that we ourselves have received.